Verse 18, But they all shouted out together, Take this man away. Release Barabbas for us. This is a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, starting the city of murder. Pilate addressed them once again because he wanted to release Jesus. Matthew's gospel gives a more detail of, but basically it was customary at Passover to release a prisoner the crowds picked. It was like, happy Passover, I'll release a prisoner. It's not uncommon to have multiple prisoners in prison that are unjustly imprisoned by Rome. They wouldn't be just like, hey, release that serial killer for us. It would be like, release my uncle who was falsely accused by you and is guilty of nothing but just in the wrong place at the wrong time, release them, kind of a thing. But Barabbas might be the only person who's in prison at this point on this day. There's no guarantee that every year there was somebody who was worthy of being released. It was just an option for them. Barabbas is known even outside the Bible as a murderer, like a repetitive murderer. And he is known outside the Bible as even the Jews hated him. They saw him as a hornet's nest kicker kind of a guy who caused a lot of problems for them with the Roman Empire coming at them. He was a rebel. He was a mercenary. He was an insurrectionist. And they did not like him. Pilate is basically trying to get a feel for the crowd. Hey, we've got this Jesus who's not really guilty and you liked a couple weeks ago and now you don't. And now we got Barabbas who's this, you, you definitely hate him, who's an insurrectionist and a murderer and you don't like him. So who do you want released? And they're like, Barabbas. That's like saying, release Genghis Khan or Hitler or, or whatever, like, or Jeffrey Dahmer before he became a Christian. Okay, like, this is sadistic. And then they're releasing him. So Pilate addressed them once again because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept on shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And the third time they said to them, why? What wrong has been done? I have found him guilty of no crime deserving death. I will therefore flog him and release him. But they insisted in demanding with loud shouts and be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided their demand should be granted and released the man that they asked for who had been thrown in prison, insurrection, murder. But he had handed Jesus over to their will. Then in the second half of verse 22, Pilate then again offers the flogging as an appeasement rather than crucifying, and they cry out for a crucifixion even more. Then in verse 25, it says they released Barabbas and then gave him over to be crucified. And nowhere does it mention that Jesus was flogged or when he was flogged in these sequence of events in the Gospel of Luke. However, Matthew, Mark, and John specifically state that Jesus was flogged and make it very clear that Jesus was flogged after the releasing of Barabbas. So Barabbas was to kind of get an idea of how much they hated Jesus versus this criminal. The flogging then was to kind of have a compromise. But after these two things are done, then they still want crucifixion. Pilate's flogging of Jesus it's trying to appease the crowds either way the wind might be going. And so I will flog him, which is a, a penalty, a, a punishment, but I won't kill him. And that way I can go to Tiberias since I'm walking the line here. What is a flogging like? There are three types of floggings in the Roman world. The first one was the, the fustigatio. The fustigatio was a flogging of very minor. It was for like just thefts or minor offenses. It was a few lashes on the back and, and then they would send you away. Now remember, few lashes is still horrific. So that was for relatively light offenses. The next one 
was the flagatio. The flagatio was for more severe flogging. This was done for criminals that were, the crimes were more serious or they were more repetitive. So there were multiple thefts that had been happening or these were people who had been, they had committed murder, but it might have just been like a non-Roman citizen or some kind of a slave. So they, they, they would beat you for this. And the next one is the verbatio. The verbatio was what Jesus most likely got. This was for the most severe crimes. These were murders against Roman citizens. These were like um, serial crimes, that kind of stuff. And it, there was no limit. Now, I know we've heard that like there are 40 lashes and then the 40 lashes believed to kill you, so you're only allowed to have 39. That's a Jewish rule. The Jews didn't like the floggings. Some of the Jews did do a flogging, but they had a rule. The Pharisees determined that 40 would kill you. Everybody's completely different, so I don't know where they got that number. Nobody knows where the Jews got a lot of their ideas of how to do things. So 40 would kill you, and so the most that they would ever do is 39. Just because like 39, if you die, then we could say, well, you just couldn't take it. We didn't do 40, therefore we're not violating any rules. So they would do 39. However, they've completely surrendered Jesus to Rome. And Rome doesn't have any rules on what the limit is. So they could have given Jesus whatever they wanted. But we know by what he is being accused of and how he's described, the fact that he can't carry the beam of the cross makes it very clear that he's getting the most severe flogging. So he's getting easily in the 30s, 40s, and 50s easily from the Roman soldiers. What they did was they used a flagrum. This is a whip, or it's also called a flagellum. And a flagellum, these are the two different terms here. And what it is is a wooden stick about two hand spans, kind of like fists, wrapped around it and long, um, about half of your, your um, femur bone and length. And then it has six to nine leather straps coming off of it. And then they would tie lead and bone rocks into the straps at just random intervals. And what they would do then is they would strip the, the, the criminal down and completely naked. Now, for a Jew, this would be incredibly humiliating. The Jew, to, we talked about this with the, the compassionate father parable, to even pull up your robes and expose your legs was considered scandalous. It was considered humiliating. It was considered nudity in the Jewish world. They, they really, God made it very clear in the law to not reveal your nakedness in public. And the Jews took this very seriously. And so to be stripped down naked in front of everybody, well, for Rome, being naked is not a big deal. But for us today, it is. But for the Jew, it would be even more so because we show skin that is incredibly offensive to the Jew just on a daily summer basis by wearing shorts and, and people wearing bathing suits and that kind of stuff. So this was incredibly humiliating. So they would take this ox hide, and this is a professional whipper, would be called a lector, okay? And a lector was literally someone who, like, went to school to flog people, or that was a course that they took in Roman soldiery. Basically what they do is they strip this guy down naked, and then they would tie him, to some kind of a post, a post that came up about waist level somewhere in there. And they would take you and they would pull your body, your chest, onto the top of this post, which is about the size of a tree trunk, a normal size. And they would pull you over and they would tie your hands down on the other side of the post. And you've seen this in the Passion of the Christ. 
Okay, and what they would do is they you would then be bent over this thing, and the the Roman soldier didn't whip you like pirate ships or the British sail on navy movies that we've watched, where they just whip you in a Indiana Jones kind of a way. What they would do is they would take this cat of nine tails, so to speak, that was like a nickname for it, and they would throw it down on the back, on the shoulders. They would let it wrap over the shoulders onto the chest and lay it into the back. And they would let everything dig in. And then they would pull down. They would not lift it up. They would pull down your back, down your buttocks, and down your thighs. And it was like taking a giant cheese grater to your back. And they would rip the flesh off. And just one of these would just be absolutely excruciating. And so they did this. And if you're going to get the 30, 40, 50 lashes, this is incredibly horrendous. Eusebius, who was a Roman historian who actually witnessed this on a regular basis with his own eyes, wrote this. The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles and sinews and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. In fact, Cicero, who was also a Roman historian who lived during that time period and watched these with his own eyes, he, um, there's a book called um, Crucifixion. It's a teeny little book. Um, it's a good read, not an enjoyable read. Um, <laughs> It's a little book, and Cicero in there basically is quoted as saying that some of the victims, well, most of the victims after a flogging, they got the more severe one, they had to tie a sash around their waist to keep their organs from falling out their back because we know that the rib cage comes down here, and then you have the pelvic bone, and there's that space there that nothing is keeping anything in once the muscles and the flesh are gone. So Dr. C. Truman Davis describes the flogging this way. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across the person's shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and then finally spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels and the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which the others cut open. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. Remember, Paul was flogged multiple times. Now, most likely he got the minor one, okay, because I doubt this, this can cripple. This will cripple you. This was an excruciating thing that he was going through. So this isn't just some, like, give him a couple whips on a pirate ship, and then you say, hey, are you happy now? We're literally filleting the flesh and the muscles off the back of Christ. Which then gives you a whole insight into the cross. Because one of the things in the cross is in order to breathe, you have to pull yourself up and down constantly to get breath. And they didn't like take the cross into a DIY workshop and sand it down for hours to make it very smooth and then, and then polish it and stain it and polyethylene. This is just cut with an axe out of a tree. So we're talking about splinters now in that raw flesh. So, and if they had clothed them at any time before that as going to the cross or they kept him naked, if he was clothed, then we're talking about 
putting a fabric onto a bloody skin and then the blood drying and then having to rip it back off again for the cross. Now, that I don't know. But if they did clothe him, that would definitely have happened in the heat of the sun. That would be drying the blood very quickly. This is going to go into, you're going to go into shock after this. And he's hoping that this appeases the crowds. He's hoping this appeases the crowds. But they're not happy. They're not, after watching this, after watching this, they're still not happy. This alone just points to the sadistic nature of this crowd right now. Now, granted, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're leading this. That makes them sadistic and evil. The crowd is probably in group mass mentality at this point. I'm not justifying. You're still sick and twisted. But it's a little bit more where they're more likely to go home and be like, holy crap, would I just like join it? Where the leadership is less likely to think that way. And so this is the flogging that he gives them. And at this point, Pilate realizes what way the wind is truly blowing now. Because if he's flogged them right in front of their eyes, and they're still not happy, and if they're willing to release this guy, Barabbas, instead of Jesus, then at this point, he washes his hands and says, this is what you want. This is a, a political washing hands. This is not, I'm not guilty of any moral crime. This is, you can't go to Tiberius and claim that I was anti your wishes. If you go to Tiberius and claim that me killing Jesus is stirring up the crowds, look at everything that I've done to avoid this. So what Pilate is saying from everybody is, I'm not politically guilty. You cannot remove me from power by saying this is not what you want, the death of Jesus. And that is really, truly the motives that are behind Pilate. Pilate is not portrayed as a good guy trying to do the right thing by Jesus and the Jews are all jacked up. Everyone is jacked up evil. It's just that Pilate is playing more Game of Thrones and politics than the crowd is. And this is why Pilate is killing him. Because the crowd wants it and he wants to keep his job because he's already on thin ice with Tiberius. As we will see after Jesus dies, he messes up and he loses his position, maybe even his head for all we know. So Pilate hands Jesus over for crucifixion. Verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon the Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they placed the cross on his back and made him carry it behind Jesus. Jesus is now being marched out of the city. And you ha there, the Jewish law says that you're not allowed to execute anybody inside the city. So this would be directly outside the city. He would be marched outside the city. This is why if you've ever been to Israel, there's the garden tomb or the Jesus tomb. And um, that's not actually where Jesus was crucified. Because it's inside the city. And the Bible makes it very clear in three of the Gospels that Jesus was crucified outside the city. So that site's not accurate. And if you've ever been there, it's a really cool site to go to because if it gives you a really good idea of what the tomb would have really looked like in that time period. But the people there, will they're very adamant that this is the crucifixion and burial of Christ. The problem is they can't literally give you any evidence for it. And no historian agrees with this. And the guy, I forget his name, but the guy actually discovered it back in the 1970s. And he basically literally went off to Israel to find the place. 
and he got off the bus. And the minute he got off the bus, he saw a hill that looked like a skull, and he said, that's it. And he went there and started building the stuff there. That was the extent of his research. So, um, so the garden tomb, if you have a chance to go to Israel, definitely go there. It gives you a really good visual of what the, the tomb would have looked like. But it's not the place. It's in the city, and it doesn't... I mean, everything is in the city today, but back then it was in the city. Most likely, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the more accurate place. The problem is you go there, and you don't get a good understanding of what it would look like because the Muslims during the Crusades came in, and they Saladin was a uh, Muslim general, king, warrior that led, was a major figure in the Crusades, and he basically gave his men all pickaxes when they got in Jerusalem, and he told them to pick the hill away. It was very well known where that hill was in that tomb, and they literally picked it all away, the entire tomb away, the entire hill. They picked it down really low. And when you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you can go in, and you can actually see the pickaxe marks all over the, the, the ground of the church. It's encased in glass. The problem is, it's, dare I say, in my opinion, the church is very gaudy. Um, there's a lot of gold, and it's old, and it, it's cool in a historical sense, but it doesn't bring any reverence or true historical, spiritual connection to what happened here, biblically speaking. That's my opinion. There are thousands of people in the world who disagree with me, and that's okay. That's more historical, most likely. Um, most historians go that right, but the garden tomb is more visual and more accurate for what it would look like because it was untouched. He had brought, been brought out of the city and to be crucified, most likely north of the city too, up higher. The other thing is he would be required to carry the, what's called the patabulium. He'd be required to carry the patabulium, the vertical beam of the cross that goes up and down. That would be permanently implanted in the crucifixion spot. There are multiple crucifixions that have been done there. And the crucifixions were always done along the road. So think like 270 or 71, the major ins and outs. So this wasn't like, in the movies they always portray them going way out far past the city. They go up this hill and there's this nice like wind blowing along and, and they're in the middle of nowhere and everybody and they're, they're looking way up at Jesus on the cross. That is not how the Romans did it. They wanted everyone to see what was happening, and they wanted everyone to know and be horrified. And what they would do is the minute you left the major gates of the city, they would put the cross right there. Like I mentioned la the last time we got together, in the Chosen film, they showed him. Like, he's wa Jesus walking into the city, and the crucifixion is right there, and their heads are just slightly above your heads. And so everything was as in your face as possible. So they would put them right along the side of the road. The crosses would always be there. Even if somebody wasn't on the cross, the beams would be there for everybody. Remember, like one day there could be somebody there as they're going in and out of the city. And the people were just slightly higher up. They would lift them up a foot or two off the ground at the most two feet. But a foot off the ground on the cross. So that means that their chest would be about eye level. It wouldn't take much of lifting the head to look them right in the eye. The Romans want as much in your face as possible, and they want as many people to see it as possible so that you would know, don't do this, or you will end up like this as well. So think major thoroughfare, major traffic, hustle and bustle of the city. That's where Jesus is. So this is a long journey out there. This is literally we're just trying to get outside the city gate. And Jesus is going to carry what's called a horizontal beam. And this is the patabulium. 
And this is the beam that they would force you to carry on your shoulders, either across your neck like a yoke or over your um, um, shoulder like the Navy SEALs in boot camp carrying the logs kind of a thing. And you would carry it. And you would carry it to the cross so that they could lift you up on it. The fact that Jesus can't even make it outside the city, which is only a few square miles, shows you how badly he has been flogged and how weak he truly is. It's not uncommon to flog and crucify somebody, but they're now showing that he can't carry the cross for you. So they just grab some random guy and force him to do that because Rome can't. And the guy has to carry it. So this gives you an idea of the incredible, how weak he truly is to be able to carry, to not be able to carry this beam. When they bring you to the cross, they would lay the horizontal beam out on the ground. And then what they would do is they lay you down on the beam with your arms out across the beam and your head above the beam with the horizontal beam. And then they would nail you to it. These nails were anywhere between six to seven, nine inches long. Okay, and so they were long nails and they were actually spikes, like railroad spikes, not that big or thick, but that kind of a look, that kind of an idea of iron. They were railroad kind of spikes and they were anywhere um, to five to nine inches long and they would nail them into your wrist. So you have these two bones that go from your elbow to your wrist and it's right there. I know the Catholics have the nail going through the hand and I know the passion of the Christ shows they go in there, but that's because Mel Gibson is a super devout Roman Catholic and this tradition is everything. But any doctor can tell you that there are so many bones in the hand that the minute they put that big of a nail in, it would just smash the bones and they would all fall apart. And the minute you put any kind of weight on it, the last of what you have left of your hand would just be pulverized and, and broken apart like just smashing Legos to the ground kind of an idea. And we have found many, many, many crucified bodies and grave sites. And not one of them has ever had the nails in the hands. So historically, we've also read many, many, many articles of people like Eusebius and Cicero describing a crucifixion, and they talk about going into the wrists. So between historical firsthand accounts and archaeological discoveries and medical information, that's not accurate. One of the reasons people are like, well, wait a minute, Jesus had touched my hand, like in the hand, I crucified in the hand. The Greek word for hand is the same word for wrist and forearm. And it's all context, like trunk, trunk of a tree, trunk of a car, trunk of an elephant. It's all context. It can mean any of that. So it's not a technical word. It's a location word. So you've been crucified there. We don't know what happened to Jesus. But there are many archaeological discoveries and many writings of people with first-hand accounts where they not only would put it in the wrist, sometimes they would put it at the elbow. Okay, And what it would do is there is a nerve that goes up the length of that arm. It's called the median nerve. That's what we call the funny bone, which is a bogus name. And if you've ever hit that funny bone and felt that pain, well, just imagine a stake going through it and then rubbing along it. The Romans were actually trained to hit that nerve. They wanted to hit that nerve. So they would put it in the forearm or at the elbow, or they would put it up at the wrist, and they would drive it in there intentionally hitting the nail, the, the nerve. If they put it in the elbow, we actually have found archaeological bones like this. When they lift you up, then the weight of your body would rip the nail 
up the length of your wrist, about your forearm to the wrist, and then it would lock in as it rubs against that nerve the entire time. And so now you wouldn't just have a hole in your wrist, you would have your entire forearm ripped open along it like a pampered chef knife. And they have found bones where they dug them up where you can see the nail like that scraped across the bone as it was sliding up. This is maximum pain. This is maximum pain that the Romans are going for. So then what they would do is they would sometimes, they would take a block of wood and they would place it on the wrist and then they would nail through the block of wood and into the wrist and into the beam as like a washer to keep the wrist from sliding off. Or they would sometimes just lash ropes across the wrist to keep you on there. The idea is the nail is for pain, not to keep you on. And so then what they would do is they would take this and they would tie ropes to it, the cross beam, and then they would haul you up the beam, the vertical beam. And then that's the, where you get lifted up. And as you get lifted up, then they would lock that beam into place. And then they would come up to you and they would take the nail and they would put, it, they would put your two ankle bones side by side like you're sleeping in a fetal position. And they would nail it through the, both the ankle bones and into the cross. Now, the ankle bone is a very thick bone, so they don't always put a block of wood there. And in fact, that nail goes in so deep into the ankle, well, it goes all the way through, the ankle bone into the wood, that there are historical counts and archaeological discoveries where they couldn't get the nail out, so they had to cut the feet off to get the body and bury it so they could get a bigger crowbar-like thing and pry the ankle bones off, and then they just throw the ankles still nailed together into the grave with the body. And we have found our um, bodies that we have dug up where the nail is rusted, but still in the ankle bones in the burial site of the rest of the body. Or just if they're an unknown criminal that has no family, they're just thrown in a massive grave with all the other ones. So this is going in deep. They would be hanging there along this. True death came by suffocation. And this happened over many hours. And so what basically happens is that they basically hang you up. And what happens is because you're hanging from that, your uh, muscles are crushing your diaphragm. And they're crushing it. And what it basically does is you drop as you hang. You're, 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 you're resting on the nail in your wrist. So you're basically, you've got your legs side by side, fetal position against the cross, but then your chest is faced out towards the public and your arms are out, so you're sitting like this. And basically what happens is then you drop. And if you've ever seen people tied to poles or something like that, they begin to suffocate. And what it does is when it crushes your diaphragm or your lungs, it crushes it in the inhaled position. So it's, and then you're stuck there. So you, in, you inhale as you're going down and then you get stuck in the inhale. And that's, that's worse. It's one thing to be exhaled and stuck there. It's even more painful to be inhaled and stuck there. And so you're hanging there, and the only way you can get a breath of air is you have to push off the nails in your ankle and pull on the nails in your wrist upwards in order to exhale. And then when you, you don't have to inhale, because by just dropping down, you're going to inhale automatically. Now, probably the will to breathe, you're going to do it anyways before you drop. Once again, you're rubbing your back constantly up against this splintered cross as you go up and down. So every time you want a breath, 
You have to pull and push off of these wounded nails and your flesh in order to exhale and then drop down again to be trapped in the inhale position. This can go on for days. There are records of people suffocating for days in the cross. The will to survive in humans is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Humans are simultaneously incredibly resilient and fragile. It takes a lot to kill humans, and then other times it takes very little. And it's a weird thing about our nature. And the will to survive no matter what is a powerful thing in people. What they do is they, just, they do this constantly, hundreds, thousands of times a day, several thousand times. I mean, somebody could probably do the math. But um, and the historical records actually record like crows coming in and feeding off of your flesh as it's baking in the sun. Like you're, you're out in the sun exposed, you're getting baked, and then your flesh begins to rot, um, not rot, but like uh, um, seared off by the sun. It begins to flake, and then the birds come in and they start feeding off of it. Cicero talks about seeing a bird eating the eye out of somebody who is still living. Um, wild animals will come out of the woods and start feeding off of your feet and legs over multiple days. So this is an excruciating thing. The Romans perfected this. Most historians believe that the crucifixion is one of the most gruesome, painful things, executions ever invented by humans ever. In fact, the Romans invented a new word for the pain of a crucifixion called excruciating. It means out of the cross. That word literally means out of the cross. It's considered the most painful thing that you could ever experience in your life and a long-lasting pain. And so this is maximum pain. Alexander Metherall, a doctor in Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, is this. As the person slows down his breathing, he goes into what's called respiratory acidosis or carbon dioxide in the blood where the, car, um, the carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic, um, carbonic acid causing the acidity of the blood to increase this eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat in fact with his heart beating erratically Jesus would have known the moment of his death the hypovolemic shock would have caused a sustained rapid heart rate that would have contributed to heart failure resulting in the collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart, called a pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, which is called a pleural effusion. Basically, it leads to a whole host of things that ultimately end your death. This is the crucifixion. This is your historical medical account of a crucifixion. And in the, in, um, the Passion of the Christ that didn't really go as far as what a crucifixion is. Now, when I saw that for the first time ever, I saw it in seminary. And we actually had, by that point, I was very knowledgeable in a crucifixion. I had read multiple first-hand accounts required to read them. And they were really gruesome. And my imagination done a lot. And when I went into that movie, I had two thoughts. One, this is horrific. Like, I read about all this stuff, and now seeing it visually, it's horrific. And the other thought I had was, and that isn't even the full extent of a crucifixion, what he showed in the movie. And I remember I went with three seminary friends, and we walked out. We were planning to go out to eat afterwards. And we just got in the car. We silently sat down. We drove home. We walked into our dorms. We walked to our own separate bedrooms and closed the door and did not talk. And, and, and I remember just thinking, 
That was not the full extent of a crucifixion, and yet that was horrific and shocking. Okay, and so this is a crucifixion. What Christ went through for us. And this is what's happening. This means that everything that Christ is saying is absolutely important. If he's wasting a breath to speak, then what he is saying is absolutely essential. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? All these things, it is done or it is finished. These are very, very, I would argue, probably the most important statements of Christ to some extent um, because of what it's costing him to actually say it. He doesn't last days because he's been flogged and crucified. And this is why he dies within a matter of hours, like two to three hours at the most. And because they wanted to speed up the death of a crucifixion because they can't be hanging on the cross on the Sabbath, they would often go and break the legs of the criminals in order to basically keep them from pulling themselves up so suffocation happens instantaneously. This is important to understand because in the prophecies of Christ with the Passover lamb, you were not allowed to break any bone in the lamb. And then in the prophecies, we're told that he is a lamb. And so it is very important for Christ to not have his bones broken in order to fulfill the prophecies. This is what Rome and the Jews are doing to Christ. And because Rome, Gentiles, and the Jews represent every ethnicity in the world, this is our true representative of humanity. This is us at our worst, killing our own God. 